Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist that helps clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future to help them do more resilient strategic planning and risk, uh, you know, anticipation of risk today. And today I'm incredibly excited to uh, chat with someone I've been following for a number of years now, uh, Madeleine Ashby. Madeleine is a science fiction writer, futurist, speaker, teacher, and an immigrant living in Toronto. She's represented by Cook McDermott and UTA. Her fiction, uh, which is uh, varied and, and wide, it has featured in Nature, Tesseracts, Escape Pop, the wonderfully named Flurb, uh, The Shine Anthology and elsewhere. Her essays have appeared on Boing Boing, io9, World Changing at the Atlantic. Her fiction has appeared in Slate, MIT Technology Review, Clark's World and multiple anthologies. She's worked with a lot of different clients and continues to do so, including Intel Labs, uh, the WHO, Institute for the Future, SciFutures, Nesta, Data and Society, the Atlantic Council, Changist, and others. She's spoken at South by Southwest, Future Everything, MOSFEST, and other events. Madeline, you must be tired at this point because like, this is a lot of work. I'm currently reading her and Scott Smith's book, How to Future, which is fabulous, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And, and you know, they work hard to help people understand you know, how to think and what to do when thinking about futures. And... Uh, it's actually a fantastic book. It's incredibly uh, straightforward if you're looking to get into the futures field. Madeline, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I bought the How to Future book uh, a, f- a few months ago. And, you know, it's like even, like even if you work in the field, you sort of get it and you can see that I've, you know, sort of holding up to the camera, you know, it, it, I've, I've got it earmarked and, you know, it's really easy to get complicated with foresight and futures work yes. and frameworks and more frameworks and nuance and, and all these things. But I want to get into that in a, in a little while. As we do with each of these episodes, I like to ask uh, the guests, you know, how did you become, you know, work, become, work, you know, a person that works in, in foresight and the futures discipline? What was your journey, Madeline? <laughs> um that's a that is a very good question and i'm just trying to decide how far back to start um i'd always wanted to be a writer from when i was very young uh i'd always wanted to be a fiction writer i was the type of kid who made up stories all the time not live stories but like you know stories that clearly took place in fictional worlds uh once i learned how to type it was just sort of over for me I wrote my first novel when I was in grade nine. I had a, I was fortunate enough to have a history teacher who was a Fulbright scholar who assigned us um, a, he asked us to write a fictional story about an ancient civilization. 
Right. And I had chosen ancient India because I didn't know anything about it. And I always like to choose stuff that I don't really know a whole lot about so that there's something new and interesting for me. And I was like that even at, you know, 14 years old. And I chose that and I wrote other students sort of put together like a five or 10 page story. And I put together like a 35 page document that was about <laughs> archaeologists finding a corpse and there was a mystery. And then someone had an affair and like, you know, it was just all this stuff. But it was I needed 35 pages to get out all the information to exposit all of the things that I had, I had learned. Yeah. And Mr. Uh, my teacher, uh, Mr. Kedward said, you know, how about you do this for the rest of the year? For every unit that I teach, you will be responsible for a chapter oh, wow. with these characters. And I promise that if you do that, and if you sign a contract with me, if you agree, if you, if we, if we can come to an agreement that you will work on this all year, you won't quit, and you will agree to submit it for publication, and take that on the jaw, I will get you. I will guarantee you an A plus for the rest of the year. Wow. No questions asked, as long as you do this to the deadlines that we set, and uh, together. And, and you do rewrites and, and those things. And I said, sure, sign me up. And so that was the first novel I ever wrote. And I mentioned that because a lot and, of- And you were, four, you were what, 14, 15? 14, 15. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, it was in grade nine. And I continued revising it into, into like my 10th grade year to kind of polish and, and stuff and it wasn't purchased anywhere but we sent it off and uh and so on but i mention it because i was doing for the information i was learning in class uh the the historical information so social studies type type stuff uh information about culture information about technology information about demographics information about um architecture um i was sort of taking all of that information and putting it into fiction and now what I do is that exact, a very similar process for scenario development, narrative prototyping, and information that, that uh, I've come to about the future or information that, you know, about existing trends. So cultural information, technology information, dem demography information, everything that's on the steep feet, you know, things like that. Um, wind up in in my fiction now that happens to be set again like you said five ten twenty years in the future right. and and so it was my introduction i didn't know at the time you know how useful that was going to be i knew that i was really excited about that project as a writer because i it let me do my favorite thing to do you know i got excited about going home every day and having more time to write um i got excited about turning chapters in but I didn't know how closely it was going to mirror or how it was going to train me for the things that I do now. And the way that I wound up in the place that I'm in now is that uh, I had done a, um, after I came to Canada, I, I, um, I had already applied for, um, but hadn't yet been accepted for, uh, um, or I'd, I hadn't already applied for it, but I had, I was, yeah, no, I hadn't already applied for it because I, I attended a conference at York University. Huh. Um, I had submitted a paper and got to read a paper at York University. Um, 
for their for a program in Japanese animation and uh, cyborg theory. Oh, right. And and so I I attended a conference, and at that conference, uh, one of the professors there said, "Hey, you know, you should really apply for grad school here. Like, I'll be your advisor if you need one. What are you What are you doing? You know, <laughs> like let's let's get started." And uh, so I'd already completed a degree in uh, in, in the interdisciplinary studies program there uh, with a project that focused on Japanese animation, cyborg theory, and fan culture. So a lot right. of Henry Jenkins, a lot of Donna Haraway, a lot of um, Toshio Ueno and, and uh, Susan Napier and, and those folks. And uh, I had um, I had written that and I was in a car, it was really close to uh sort of graduating i think i'd already done my defense and stuff and uh i was in a car with carl schrader uh uh who was a member of the science fiction writers workshop that i am a member of uh the cecil street irregulars uh which is where i had been that was one of my landing places when i came to canada right. um and carl and i were in the car together and he said what are you gonna do now that your degree is done and I said, well, I don't know. I guess I should look at PhD programs or, you know, sort of figure out what's next. And he said, because I think you should do what I do. I think you should be a novelist and do science fiction prototyping and, and foresight work. And he had he at the time had just wrapped a big project with Canadian Armed Forces called Crisis at Zebra, which yeah. you can uh, go find out there in the ether. And, and he said, I don't think the traditional academia is for you. I think you need to do what I do. And there's a program that will let you do that. And it's at OCAD University uh, before it was called the university because uh, this was 11 or 12 years ago, actually, when this when this conversation occurred, if not longer. And uh, and so I applied to that program, which was the Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program at OCAD U alongside Carl. And we got in. We were part of the initial cohort there. Uh, I managed to... Um, despite having turned my entire life upside down, uh, graduate on time. And I um, did a, my project there was, my thesis was on um, the future of border security. And it led me to a project with Intel Labs and doing some work for them. And I published a little bit of that, sort of the, some of the stories from that research for Boing Boing and um uh then the rest was sort of the rest was history i just sort of have been a freelancer ever since um and i've been extremely lucky uh in my friendships in my networks in my clients in the people in the people that i know and people coming back to me for things um and it's been every year that they let me continue doing this i'm surprised <laughs> every every year that i get to keep doing it is is sort of just a, a miracle for me <laughs> I'm I'm always so flabbergasted that you know how oh, they let me do this they let they let me keep doing the best job in the world are you kidding me? <laughs> and and, and, and it it seems like uh, you know foresight practitioners futurists you know the the people that do what we do 
you know, are more in demand today than they've ever been before, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and yeah. I think the pandemic yeah. has kind of shaken that up a little bit. I got mm-hmm. incredibly excited when you talked about sort of Japanese animation and cyborg theory. <laughs> I, I, did, I did a whole, whole bunch of stuff around sort of thinking about cyborg anthropology. I became friends with Amber Case. We did Cyborg Camp in Vancouver in 2013. Oh. Uh, 2014, I did another conference and put like a microchip in my hand because, you know, that's what we do as transhumanists, right? But, you know, the, the whole Japanese animation cyborg theory, Tetsuo Iron Man, the crazy, crazy stuff that they, that that kind of super excites me. You know, I just just I think I, I told you I, I chatted to Carl uh, in mm-hmm. one of these episodes uh, uh, and everyone can go and uh, see that episode. It was a fantastic episode. And, and it's interesting. You sort of get dragged in by the gravity of your own interest into foresight and futures. Yes. And suddenly mm-hmm. pe- people start off by saying, what does that even mean? And you're a futurist. And so someone years ago sort of said, oh, you're a futurist. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, and you just ended up, you know, I was already doing strategy and strategic yeah. thinking and yeah. human computer interaction and conferences on that and running things. And people were like, no, no, that's kind of what you do. And it's like, okay, you lean into it. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like opening a door and suddenly it's like, wow, there's 10,000 weirdos behind this door, right? That's that's what I found with the with the OKED, with the program at OKEDU. There was suddenly one of the best parts of it was that it gave me a critical language for understanding my own experience. Right. There was I, suddenly I realized that there were words for the thing that my brain was doing. <laughs> right. Um, and and it felt it was it was immensely validating. It was a it was an immensely validating sensation to realize that like oh you know not only are there is there are there words for this is there a language for this there's a way for me to finally express the thing the thought process that i'm i'm experiencing organically but also there's an entire community of practitioners and there are people who are just as concerned about these issues as you are you are not alone in these in these questions that you're asking there is a forum for this. There is a place for this. There is a, a place for these ideas to live, and and that to me was huge. Yeah, and suddenly it's that it's that sudden realization that there's no one futures and it's plural, mm-hmm. it's multiple futures, mm-hmm. and then you start looking at ethics and you start looking at the boundaries of of the worlds that you can think about creating mm-hmm. with with your clients, and it's like whoa, <laughs> and it is. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's oh. Now <laughs> I, I was. More. I was watching a keynote on YouTube. I'll put a link to the keynote uh, down in, in, in the description. And, and it, I love this quote. You said, futures work is, hard, is, harder to do, is hard to do and easier than you think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, um, can you unpack that for it's us? I mean, hard, yeah, it's, the, it's sort of the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's easier than you think. Like, yeah. I think, I, and, and the reason I say that is that I think a lot of the limitations, as with so much else in life, the limitations that we put on our futures are the limitations that we put on our futures. Yeah. I think that um, a lot of foresight work is, is about as you said, sort of setting those boundaries and deciding where the limits are gonna be and where the where the edges of the frame are. Sort of like in filmmaking where you decide what the aspect ratio is going to be for the final cut, for the final image, you have to make those decisions ahead of time when you're scoping a project. 
and when you determine when you determine the scope of something um once you're once those boundaries are set once you know sort of the size of the frame filling it becomes a lot more easy and and I find that um, the primary difference between the work that I do as a fiction writer and the work that I do uh, when writing fiction for clients is that the, the box that I'm allowed to sort of fill with, with content or with a story is usually much smaller when you're doing right. work. Like it's like, there are limits there. Yeah. Um, some artists, some writers don't respond to those limits and I do. Um, I, through experience, through training, through, through preference, through, you know, who I am as a person, um, I responded well to those limitations and thought like, oh, these are challenges. These are, this, this is not a limitation. This is you throwing down the gauntlet and now right. I have to pick it up in a certain way. And I get really excited about that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so to me, I think it's really easy to look from the outside and say like, oh my God, you're so constrained. That's so difficult. Um, but for, for me, it's exciting. And, and, uh, and so it, that's what I say. That's why one of the reasons I say like, it's actually easier than you think, but you have to give yourself permission. Right. You know, and, and I think that's the, the hump that a lot of people have to get over. Certainly when you're, in a workshop or, or, or in a setting with people, you have to kind of give them the permission to, and I always open with this, like, look, this is, this is a space where you are free to have the thoughts that have bedeviled you. Because I find that once people are, have been given that permission, suddenly they're full of ideas and they're often sort of voicing ideas that, that, they may have been holding back on for years. And once, and once you're in the position to unleash that creativity, it does get easier, <laughs> and, and, way and, easier than you thought it would be. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think uh, organizationally, you know, I, I would say 99.9% .9 of all organizations aren't flat and do not really encourage, you know, freedom of thought right. <laughs> and, yeah. Sharing yeah. Of, and sharing of wild ideas. Yes. Uh, e yeah. even, even the companies that say they're highly progressive, whatever. and there's some really interesting companies like like Kiosera that's out there, and their Amoeba management, and Wiz but everything still works within that limitation. I guess that's what I found through the work that I've been doing hmm. is like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just say whatever you want to say about this idea. If you feel that this idea about using you know brain computer interfaces, you know drone swarms, and the military is a terrible thing, then maybe say mention that. that. Yeah, you know, yeah, make, <laughs> mention it and talk about it and and you know let's unwrap that and you know it, it's almost with groups of people you suddenly see this freedom and um and then you know so, some of those people literally go and quit their jobs and go and do something else <laughs> yeah. i've like, had i've had that happen well yeah. not in not in any of my workshops but after keynotes i've actually uh i had someone come up to me uh once uh and they were working with a relatively new technology and she just came up in tears and and she just said i can't do this anymore right i cannot do it any longer i know what we're going to use it for right and and i said well one you might 
you know, th thank you for telling me. Like I wasn't entirely, I, I wanted to be supportive. And, and I said, you know, that's, that sounds like the right call for you. Yeah. And also you should consider telling the press. <laughs> you should maybe, <laughs> you know, it sounds like you might be sitting on something here that like lots of people would be interested in um, and, and stuff. So it does come up. Like, I think like that's the, and I think that's what's scary to people about the process Yeah. is that it reveals it's actually a reveal of what's inside, not what's coming. It's a reveal of it's a it's the the revelation of what is in what is already there and what the, and the potential of what is already there. Right. You know, and that's what scares people. I think. Yeah, it, it's like saying climate change doesn't exist, and the fact, <laughs> like you know, in twenty years' time, their kids are, are wearing Factor One Hundred sunblock, and yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it's it's a tough day in Alberta, you know. <laughs> yeah no it's 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 sort of like it is i think one of the one of the freedoms in writing science fiction is that you get to be in dialogue with those possibilities right and you get to be you're sort of in a you're sort of in a space where that kind of thinking is encouraged whereas if you bring up kind of those those thoughts or those those worries or or you know not even worries but like concerns rooted in reality right. concerns rooted in the day you know hey i looked at this bar graph and it doesn't look to be trending in our direction um if you bring those things up sometimes in certain corporate environments uh and and it, depending on on the culture that you're in and the position that you're in, you can really get punished for quote unquote being negative right and not being a quote unquote team player, or you're bringing me problems, not solutions, or you know whatever whatever variation, whatever flavor of the month it is. But that's the I think people kind of get punished for for that kind of thinking. And in fact, that's the kind of like we as a species have evolved to do exactly that. We perceive threats. That is what our brains do. And uh, sometimes to our detriment, you know, we tend to remember threats or remember negative externalities more so than we remember positive outcomes. That's one of, you know, the things that we struggle with as a species. But we're oriented to do it at, for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, 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 it's been helpful. But there, there, there's, something the here, there, there, there's something here that we, we're touching on as well is, you know, that, that person coming up to you saying, I can't do this anymore. We're kind of activists in a way. I kind of feel that, you know, if you're a futurist, you're an activist, right? I feel I've, I'm hesitant to bring that label on myself because, okay. you know, I came from a, uh, um, you know, I, I went to a Jesuit university where we would ho hold die-ins for Father Romero in the nuns. Right. So, uh, and, I've, and I've been, I have activists, I have like genuine sort of activists in my family who work much harder than I do. <laughs> And who who are far more committed to 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 sort of making to implementing goals to, to right. sort of implementing a kind of reality. What I would what I would say is that sort of futures can become sort of agents provocateur, right? Um, where you or where you are sort of instigating something by being, you know, the grit that makes the pearl. You are kind of the irritant. You are kind of the the sort of instigator or um, the sort of spark or the the igniter, and and you kind of get to um, ignite these moments in other people, 
And that's one of the privileges of the job, I think. For me, it's one of the privileges of the job is sort of yeah. watching the light go on for people where they're like, oh, right, yeah, that is a possibility. This thing that I've been closing myself off to or that we as an organization have been closing ourselves off to yeah. and, and stuff. And, the, you know, I will say, like, I've had people be very angry at like some of the, the things that I've written. My One of my, one of the best moments on, of my career actually happened really early. And I want this to happen again because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, um, some, uh, a suite of stories that I had written for, for a client uh, were presented in another country as part of a larger event. And, one of the engineers in that room was so angry at the possibilities that had been raised that he actually got up and left right and and said i'm going to do a counter presentation tomorrow and i think that's the best use of it in a lot of ways especially when you're talking about storytelling narrative prototyping science fiction prototyping right speculative design uh you know design fiction that stuff in that realm is that it does ignite that kind of conversation it does get kind of get people angry it does make them scared a little bit or it does sort of pique their interest or their imagination and once you have that suddenly you're actually able to have that conversation in a way that isn't just you know looking at a hockey stick graph right right and growth at any cost and all this good yeah, stuff. I, yeah, mean, yeah. I mean i mean this this is good as well and i want to touch on this because there's the idea about uh, building you know, hugely optimistic futures and, and aiming for those horizons where the world is going to be fantastic and maybe it's around the technology and suddenly everyone's using this technology that's going to change the world and it might be to do with energy or climate, it might be to do with education, waving the flags, all good, we're in that future, right? But I don't think things are that convenient. I always say that the future is hugely inconvenient. Yes. Um, it, it always has been hugely inconvenient. And sure, you can look at the you know the things that you agree with and walk walk towards them, and that's all good. But there's all this inconvenience around that that one thing that you think it is a positive thing. And having read some of the articles on your website, and we, we, we you know let's touch on your website a little bit because you because you're up, updating that and thinking about yes. content or whatever. You know, very much like me. Yeah, I, I'm into dystopian futures. I'm writing, <laughs> I'm writing a book on dystopian futures. I'm so I, excited about that. I, 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 I wrote, yeah, I, I, you know, I wrote a chapter called "The Future Starts Now," and I'll send you the chapter. Please do. Uh, and it's called, uh, you know, my chapter's called "Start with Dystopia," which is mm-hmm. if you actually look into the darkness and realize how bad it can get, that's not a bad place to start. <laughs> but, yeah. no, but no one wants to do that, right? Yeah, I, I feel as though there's there's also a, you know, and, you know, sort of what gets bandied around. I'm actually giving a keynote um, on Friday uh, for the Science Fiction Invaders Association um, uh, on so that's sort of related to this, that, you know, that sort of dystopia is there's there's a constant debate in science fiction um, and it's in in science fiction and sort of literatures of the future. Uh, literatures of possible futures about you know why isn't there more optimism and i've been in a bunch of optimistic science fiction anthologies i was part of project hieroglyph i've continued to do a lot of work with asu csi uh i was part of the shine anthology like i get i keep being invited to these projects even though a lot of people don't think of me when they think of utopia (laughs) um but the um the 
there's a lot of debate about, you know, why aren't pe people more hopeful? And I think that has to do with, with what is going on now. That has to do with the, the realities that they live in every day and the, and the, and what, you know, what information they have about what's happening on the ground. And, and the information is not always good and you have to be there for that. There's kind of a, ongoing debate about whether or not we need to be writing more hopeful futures to give people a target right, right. in the sort of batcast methodology right where we design the we design the ideal future we sort of look at possible ideal futures and then we think backward from there we sort of do a work back of like well what would it take to get there and and people do that all the time in their own personal lives like where do you want this relationship to be in five years where do you want to be professionally in five years like that kind of thinking is very common right. but i think that when you you are you know the, there are people who can see very clearly how something might go wrong right and because it's so habitual you can you can easily sort of get typecast or pigeonholed or or what have you as being negative or what have you and or being depressing or depressive or or whatever and um whereas i tend to think of that as being very vigilant right almost almost hyper vigilant and i think hyper vigilant people kind of become very good at this type of thinking in my experience right and and usually um and actually i was i was talking with another writer who's writing the introduction to someone's memoir uh to another science fiction writer's memoir and we were actually kind of talking about this back and forth that like th there is a certain mindset that you have to embrace in order to 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 get good at that kind of thinking and it's not always a fun mindset to be in so I think there's, for as much as people get punished for embracing that mindset or allowing themselves to have it, um, I think the reason for that punishment is that people don't want to live in that space. Like right. they do not wish to enter that mindset. And I can understand it because if you're running a startup or you're running a business or you're, or you're in charge of a lot of people, you're responsible for a lot of lives, you're responsible for a big division or something like that it can be very hard to keep yourself at that sort of high level of, of positivity right. that you think might be enabling you as a leader. Like if you, if your goal is to be at like, you know, Ted Lasso levels of positivity all the time, you know, if you have to be coach Taylor, if you have to be the captain of the ship, if you, you know, if you have to be up here at a 10 all the time, it can be very hard to engage with, you know, uh, that negativity. But right. in fact, you know, science fiction wise, I always go with the sort of, you know, the original Star Trek model. You know, there's Captain Kirk, who's always here at this level of optimism, but he is supported by two legs of a tripod of two <laughs> people who are like, one is coldly logical and the other is dubious of all human motivation. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking about bones, right? <laughs> bones, bones and Spock. You know, it doesn't work without those people supporting you. So you have to look at the people who are supporting you and say, like, okay, like, what, what is it that I'm not seeing here? Right. Because you cannot, you cannot, you cannot captain that ship without it. You cannot move forward without yeah. it. 
And it's 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 totally valid to say what could go wrong. I mean, again, yeah, I love is. I love the idea of like the ideal target. Cool. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, but that's that's a small universe of everything's going well and external forces have got no effect on this bulletproof idea, right? Well, and also they're highly individual. And this right. is the thing I'm actually going to talk about in the keynote is that like, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I think like we can have the, the conversation about hope, about optimism, about national histories, about cultural histories, about, you know, sort of the way things are going, climate targets, all kinds of stuff. Um, but the, the reason that, you know, dystopias are easy to write or easier to do is because they look the same everywhere. Right. They will be individualized um, on the ground. Different people might suffer. They might have individualized rules and what have you. But, you know, a jackboot is a jackboot is a jackboot. Authoritarianism is authoritarianism is authoritarianism. You know, uh, when we when we as a species hurt each other, we tend to do it in the same ways. We might use new technologies to do it. We might um, we might sort of code it in different language, but what we do to each other tends to look the same. Right. And and so it's much harder to imagine an ideal because it's that ideal is highly individualized to the person imagining it. In the same way that you know your vision of, of a possible afterlife might be different, your your vision of an ideal relationship is going to be different. Your vision right. of retirement, your vision of your your dream house, your vision of you know how you'd like to raise your children, like all those things, it, those are highly individualized and very and that's a matter of bespoke tailoring. Whereas dystopias are off the rack; those are ready to wear because they look exactly the same. They they fit exactly the same. And no matter where they are or who's perpetuating them. And so they are easier to do because they are also reflective of like of what tends to happen, what can happen. Um, but I think when the value of, of the utopia, and again, this is a thing that I'm probably gonna bring up in this, in this keynote, um, is that the value of the utopia is that when people describe their ideal, when they are describing those things, they're actually telling you where they have been wounded. Right, exactly. It speaks to the woundedness, the brokenness, the yep. fracturedness of their world or themselves or their organization or their culture or what have you. Like they're, they're, they're showing you the parts that in the, uh, what's it called, the kintsurukui, uh, the, the Japanese tradition of filling cracks in, in pottery with gold. That's they're right. telling you right. what has to be filled with gold. The, his, the history of trauma. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the, that's the, um, one of my friends calls me the future trauma lady. And I was like, oh, he, he's like, I call you the FTL. And I, and I was like, oh, like faster than light. And then he's like, mm, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you know what? The history it's of true. trauma lady is, that that's fantastic yeah. at the same the, time. The I mean, future trauma ladies. That's I mean, I, I was, telling, I was telling you about I was telling you about Dark Futures this, this series and they, yes. someone called it the Black Mirror of TED Talks and I kind of like that. Oh, I kind of like that. It, it was cool. just about it was just about the so so the rationale is uh, you know there are many hidden systems in the world and a lot of those hidden systems are bad and once yeah. we start to see the hidden systems we can't go back. Many years ago, I remember waking up at five a.m. I was in my my partner's uh, bedroom at the time 
different part of my than I'm with now. And I, mm. I was just like staring at the floor, shaking my head, like worried about stuff. And it was just when I started to look at, you know, uh, the, the whole ideas behind sort of hacking cybersecurity, but also privacy, security, identity, surveillance, capitalism, the whole thing. Uh, and they looked up and they were like, are you okay? I'm like, no. And, she got, no. and she's like, why? It's like, I've learned too much. Yeah. And, and, you, are, and yeah. you are, you're traumatized, but you have to sort of heal that in a way and, and think well, about I think, that. I think you have to, if you're doing the, the, the real work, you have to engage with like actual pain that people have felt. Right. And, and say like, look, you know, the, the path that we are on is causing these problems. Yeah. You know, and, and say, look, some of this, this is not working for everybody. Right. And in this, this, and this, in this way, like, um, and those things are going to shape how people make decisions in the future. So for example, um, in Canada specifically, uh, we uh, have dealt with, and in Ontario specifically, we have dealt with horrific conditions in long-term care homes during the pandemic. Right. Uh, COVID-19 ravaged long-term care homes such to, to the degree that the Canadian Armed Forces had to be sent in. And they the reports that they delivered back were absolutely appalling in the details that they revealed in terms of standards of care, in terms of like uh, how people were being treated, in terms of workload, in all of it, top to bottom. And I think that when people have endured something like that, probably we're going to see a change in how people think about long-term care, long-term care homes in the future. So, you know, if I were making a decision about family members of mine and I had read those reports, or if I, I was aware of those things, I might be more hesitant to involve those, those care homes in my personal future or in the future of my family. Right. So an event like this, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, might mean a, more, a greater trend in something like multi-generational households, more grandparents living at home for longer, more skepticism of that field, more, you know, a, a greater need for more bespoke care in certain, like all, all these different things. And it, but it's born out of being willing to look at a report that is actively troubling. Right. And, and it's it's and like act, active distrust of, of of health workers that may choose to uh, you know we don't want to get vaccinated and it's like yeah no and that's the, or, you know like yeah or, being willing to look at those things the fact that they they have to work three jobs because you know there's yeah, no yeah. permanent yeah. health workers and suddenly you're traveling between places and that that comes back to the familial situation which mm -hmm. might come from immigration to Canada and the yep. struggles and where they live which might mean that their kids are maybe being influenced by gangs on the street which, which actually comes from trauma which is based on it becomes yeah. this complicated, you know, web. And mm -hmm. what what is it? I think I think someone someone said it's like keep 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 asking why. Right? Yeah, yeah. Keep asking why yeah. and why and why. Of why times ten is always is always useful. It's like drill, drill, drill deeper. Because I mean, like I think like the you know there's this expectation that when you that when you learn more it'll get simpler and in fact the opposite is true that the deeper you dig the more complicated things get and and the more complex they are and you see that things are connected and i think the way that we understand knowledge to work now and the way that we educate people is to silo different kinds of knowledge and to assume that they're not connected 
And that's why I think in tech we have like a huge amount of problems where, um, you know, if if you're assuming that you just need more developers and not more people who are familiar with culture, with with philosophy, with literature, with humanities, or with just humanity, us as a species, um, that's where you run into that's where you consistently run into problems. And, and it's, I've, I know a lot of technical writers and a lot of, uh, and a lot of those people who, and technology consultants who have saved their startups, lots of money in lawsuits and, and wasted time by raising concerns, right? by not approaching everything as a development problem. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is a, this is a different kind of problem, but it's a problem and it's, and it's your problem. When you entered this business, it became your problem. And, and you almost lose control if, if suddenly like some something's being spoken in a public domain and PR has gotten a hold of it. And is there, <laughs> you know, so suddenly, you know, it, 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 you, you've got the ability to fix it. I mean, we saw this with Timnit Gerbu and what mm-hmm. happened with Google and AI and the ethics piece. And I've worked with people in Google and they're fantastic individuals. So it also comes down to the individuals in organizations yeah. Yeah. And, and thoughts about, you know, the boundaries of what should and shouldn't be done. And I'm talking more abstractly than that yeah. particular example right and, yeah. and and it's interesting but then it goes into a pr cycle and advertising and, and public relations is all about you know what is it don draper in mad men says you know we <laughs> we, we, we invented happiness to sell more nylons you know yeah it's, uh, something like that yeah it's sort of screw and i worked in advertising i absolutely hated it and i i, I literally got fired for telling a board of directors exactly what they needed to hear um <laughs> and then you know two years later suddenly None of them had were working in that board of directors. The yeah. CEO was gone, and they were following a strategy that I suggested that day. Go figure, right? Yeah, but like no, um, that, uh, that doesn't mean that. Seen it happen. It wasn't the. <laughs> I wasn't the only one saying that. Basically, yeah. after two years, I think everyone was saying that. But the foresight that we have sort of takes us there. And and this this conversation sort of fa- uh, fascinating to me. And you know, we, we're coming sort of to the end of the time of of, of this conversation. But really pushing into the darkness as well as realizing that there's light here is incredibly, you know, positive uh, at the back of this. But you've obviously written a lot of, you know, science fiction and you obviously write a lot of sort of, uh, you know, sci-fi prototypes and whatever, you know, for, for clients as well. I mean, how how does that how does that work? I mean, uh, you, you say you sort of work within a box, and I completely agree. Writing a two hundred and fifty word um, story is, <laughs> yeah. is infinitely more difficult than having, say, five thousand words. Oh and yeah, <laughs> more people will, more people will read it, and every word's got more sort of energy behind more to, that. More to do. There's more, well. It has more weight to carry. Yeah. I mean, how how are you finding that 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 creates sort of ripples in the organization you work with? It's tough to say. Uh, it's tough to say because often I will not be privy to that conversation. Right. Um, often they will. They will. Uh, I'll hear. I might hear about it later. Um, I might hear about it. Um, you know, when their event is done or something like that. Or I might not hear at all. Right. I might not. I might also just like not hear at all. Um, there have been times where a thing that I described in a story showed up later. Uh, where or a version of it kind of showed up, like yeah. you know, like oh yeah no I remember I remember that slide deck, 
you know, in someone else's advertising campaign or like in yeah. someone else's where it's like, oh yeah, no, I remember, I remember them working on that or, uh, or something like that. Um, there, there are times when you can tell that, um, there, there are, there are moments when, when you are aware that you, that you thought of something or you sort of imagined something that was definitely very possible and and where and there's certainly moments where you know even if it's not a thing that you wrote about but it's the thing that you discussed in a workshop or what have you inevitably sort of comes to pass yeah. uh and so it's tough to say like what the you're not necessarily judged in that same way there isn't there isn't that but i think that's also kind of a failure on my part honestly like i think if i were smarter and i think if it, this is a thing that i think now that i've been doing this for as long as i have it's a thing i want to start doing more of is gathering that kind of feedback yeah is saying like okay how do you think that this will be useful to you and i think when i was starting out i didn't really have the courage to do that you know when you're just starting out and and i was in a very vulnerable place when i when i started out i was really just sort of grabbing for things that i could get and 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 sort of astonished that this was even happening and now that i feel as though like i now know more about what i'm good at yeah. and not good at and where i need to improve now i kind of want to start drilling for that kind of feedback to so that the next 10 years are even more you know are even more detailed or, or that i can enrich that practice i'm always thinking about how how can i enrich that practice how can i broaden and deepen my practice like what is it how how have the needs changed over time? Because I think you're right. I think more people than ever are sort of familiar with foresight language, uh, and and with the need for it. I think you're right that that the pandemic awakened people, you know, or you know, awakened different organizations to the need for this type of practice and the need for this type of stance. Um, Scott and I in the book called the Centric Stance. Um, I think that's primarily Scott's term for it. Is, is that sort of nimbleness and that willingness to understand that the future might change underneath your feet and you have to imagine different possibilities all the time right and and sort of simu be simulating them for yourself pretty consistently and and I think that you know the pandemic was the big proof that like the random pink sticky at the edge of the board under the wild cards column or the black swan column or whatever yeah, can in yeah. fact migrate directly to the center of the future's cone. Right. <laughs> and and once it's there, it tends to kick the other the other stickies out of the way pretty violently. And then you have to you have to roll with it. And and I think that like understanding that like that no things are going to be different. Yeah getting people over that, over that hump or over that, you know, helping them over that crest, I guess, is where I think suddenly there's an awareness of the utility <laughs> of yeah. future's work. Do you know what you just said has made me rethink something. I, I, I've always sort of stood, you know, you stand on stage and you've got the words that you say that, okay, this is going to have an impact and people sort of like, yes, and they're like writing it down or taking it. <laughs> by, you know, you know, change is inevitable. You either change or change happens to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that today, <laughs> right? And okay. it's going to be change is inevitable. You either change or change happens to you. True. Constantly. 
no, that's the thing. Like that's I've spent the past year, possibly the past year and a half, just saying, yeah. like, look, guys, like the the roller coaster is not gonna stop. Right. Like it might slow down. Roller coaster might slow down, might come to a level for a while. You might plateau on the roller coaster, but there will be more loops. Right. You will be upside down again at some point. And, you know, we've 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 seen it here. But this is the you know, this is this is the 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 preview. These are the coming attractions like this will happen again. Yeah. You know, whether it's this whether whether it's another virus whether it's um massive communications shutdowns infrastructure attacks um you know natural like other natural disasters yeah. um meteorites uh, immediate you know like or or you know or localized things like you know the reason that california had all the n95 masks is because they are constantly on fire right you know fire season gets longer and longer and now it's just fire year whatever and so it's like it's not that california quote unquote knew or they were in on some sort of you know some sort of thing it's like no they they had been living in that part of the future already yeah they already had real estate there and and stuff so i think it's your the future for me like what i notice is that the future kind of comes in in waves from the margins right. it always comes in from the edges right and so you will find people who are already living in that future, who are already right. They know how to surf those waves. They already know how how choppy it can get. And and the prepper, <laughs> the the preppers were wildly validated, right? They they part of it for for some for some for some values of of that in that they had access to materials, they had access to certain things, they had uh, they they did not have to go outside as frequently. Right. But but the flip side was that you know there were people who who were actively who had experience who were not prepped, but who had experience. They were prepared through their experience of being caregivers, of being, um, you know, homeschool teachers, of being people who, you know, if like the, the, it's not an accident that, you know, queer organizations and community centers were able to respond extremely effectively to a virus. Right. You know, that the surviving population, the people who had miraculously not been, you know, killed by a policy, um, were able to respond quickly and enforce and understand the changes to lifestyle that needed to happen in terms of, you know, this is what this is. This is what it is to have your life threatened in this way. And I think that there were populations sort of all over the world that had understood how to be nimble and they were marginalized populations that had uh, that understood how to be nimble and how to care right. for each other in the face of organizational incompetence you know because when you have not been when something has not been designed for you and has de been designed to exclude or not include or just not include you i think that you come up with circumventions and and those circumventions i think is, are what we have noticed to be very valuable and those those ways of caring for people right we've seen such ingenuity in small businesses in um in in the in amongst teachers <laughs> um who are who were suddenly asked to do an impossible thing and then did it and then went out and did it 
and and so you know you find it it's the you find it in the places where not just in the in the in the populations or in the groups or affinity groups or or whomever that are actively concerned with you know being prepared but also with people who have just always had to be prepared right yeah and you know i i think uh I, the idea of always being prepared is 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 something that that's incredibly important for a society that that that's just aware and paying attention, <laughs> yes. right? And, yeah. and if you if you're suddenly at our level of paying attention and everyone's like that, that's not that's not a good world either, right? Cause no, it's well, no, because it's that's just endless doom scrolling for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we're constantly looking we're for constantly, something. Yeah, no, I, and and that's that's the thing. You have to have limits to that. You have to set boundaries around that. I remember standing on West Georgia Street in uh, in Vancouver, and I lived in Vancouver for a number of years. And I remember it was about four or five years into doing the futures work and having done lots of writing, whatever. And it stood there, and I was like, "Oh shit! It's like Neo in the Matrix. You sort of <laughs> yeah, see, you see lines of code everywhere, right? <laughs> suddenly, this is it is, and you see the signals everywhere. And it's like, oh, have you noticed this? And what I say this to my clients, it's like." Just keep your eyes open and look look a little, you know, just sit on a bench and look at people and see culturally what's happening, see what technologies they're using, seeing you know, seeing you know, seeing their moods and whatever. I think it's hugely That's it's one of the questions that I get asked a lot is like, how can you keep doing this? Yeah. How do you keep doing this? How can you keep doing this? And and that is where it's it becomes kind of a one of, I think one of the reasons that we ended up uh, writing How to Future was that one people kept asking like where do you start like what right. is the one book on this that that will that that will educate me on this but that will also tell me whether or not this is for me right one of the one of the best uses for the book i think is for people to kind of dip toe in those waters and say like am i into this right is this for me <laughs> and and make that choice because the next question we get asked or that i get asked fairly consistently is how can you keep doing it right and, and, you know, how are you putting up, like, what do you do when the, when the murder wall of trends is literally a wall of murders? What do you do? And, and, and how do you navigate that? And it's not easy. I'm not going to pretend that it is. Um, and I think that, that there are a lot of jobs that don't ask you to do that. <laughs> and that it's, it, it is not like i said it's it's not easy but it is it becomes easier than you think it will right over time well it becomes clinical it's like a surgeon like yeah. uh, like surgeons very quickly get over the fact that they're cutting into a human body it's yeah. not that they don't think that that's that's not a person they know that it's a person they know there's a lot on the line they know it's yeah. incredibly important they need to be surgical they obviously they need yeah. to you know they need to follow you know they need to be focused they need yeah. to be focused they need to follow procedure and that's kind of like what we do. We're 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 almost surgeons on the underbelly of society. Well, it's sort of like yeah. it's sort of like saying like, look, you can keep smoking. I can't stop you from still smoking. Like I can't reach inside you guys and tell and make you quit. But I can tell you that in twenty years, right, the likelihood of cancer is is greater. You know, it's it's that. It, it often feels like that. And there was a great thread, Cory Doctorow did this great thread the other day um, on sort of how 
um, tobacco companies open the door to sort of anti the anti-science, anti-data, anti, frankly, anti-intellectual um, sort of habit of, of thought, the sort of that sort of very sophist strain of thought, which is to to have the data available and ignore it and right. find a way to ignore it because it makes you uncomfortable or because it because it's scary. And in so doing, open the door to, you know, climate denial. Uh, to the denial of poverty, to the denial of, of stats around uh, gun death or, or other kinds of death, um, to, the, to, the, to that kind of denial, to denialism, I guess. Right. And, and it can feel that way sometimes when you're looking at like given trends and, and say, you know, look, these are, these are possibilities. These are some possibilities. It's not necessarily going to quote unquote come true, but these are, you know, if you keep going in this direction, certain things become more possible and, and stuff. And I think that we now in, in the latter half of the 20th century and the opening of this century have become so used to that kind of thinking that it's, it's a thing you have to actively consider in your calculation i guess yeah well madeline um <laughs> the, the, <laughs> we've covered ground we've covered ground yes, in this conversation yes, yes. I'm, I'm you know and when when we get out of this strange pan pandemia that we occupy mm -hmm. we'll, uh, we'll meet up we'll go for a coffee i'd and, love it uh, i'd love it and you Let's have to it. you have to come and do a talk at dark futures please absolutely i'd be very pleased to. Um, I'd be very people pleased are to people can't wait to to come back to that event i can't wait to to run it again but um madeline ashby someone i've followed for a long time this conversation's been been fantastic and uh, oh, a real you. a real pleasure for me so it's finally fantastic to uh, be connected with you to talk about everything from uh you know captain kirk spock and bones and their, <laughs> their, their, their dynamics through to uh, the book how to future leading and sense making in an age of hyper change and everyone go and buy this book even if you're in foresight it's like a checklist of making sure that you are staying on the track of doing what you need to do in the field <laughs> yes. i think yeah. you know it's, it's really good but you know talking <laughs> talking about dystopia I'm not going to call you the history of trauma, lady. I, I don't think that's good. I, 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 I think I think that you know what you bring to the world is incredibly important. I, I look forward to the work that you continue to do, and uh, and yeah. And where, where can people find out more about you, Madeline? Um, I'm at madelineashby.com, which is in the process of being rebuilt. Uh, I I just sent off. Um, a, a series of very probing questions to my web guy um, <laughs> about that. Uh, it was a real journey. It's a real yeah. journey. Um, suddenly, I was on the other side of the design research questionnaire, right. and that was that was unsettling. I understand now where people come from that way. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Madeline Ashby. You can find my books uh, um, on Amazon at your favorite independent retailer uh, in Toronto. I highly suggest you go to Baca. Phoenix books yep. um, on Harvard uh, or buy from Powell's online or from bookshop or, or your retailer of choice. Um, but they, they are freely available there. A lot of my fiction is free. Like I have stories on Slate at MIT tech review, places like that. You can right. engage with it for free. Um, there are some, some of my novels or audiobooks if that's kind of your jam. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of, I'm around. 
around. I'm not as good a curator of my keynotes as I should be. I had someone <laughs> tell me that recently. They were like, I couldn't find your keynotes. And I was like, they're on some of them are on LinkedIn. And she yeah. said, Oh, I didn't even think to look there. <laughs> so if you're looking for some of Madeline's keynote, there are there, there are some on YouTube. I'm, are, gonna, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll link to a couple below that I really like. But you know, you you can Thank find you. you can find Madeline online. Just I, I, go I looking. I tend not to curate that because it's like it means looking at myself, right? And like hearing myself talk. Yeah. Like I just no, it just it's. If I were an actor, I would be like the actor who sits outside the premiere waiting for it to be over. Right. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.